Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm your Christmas music disdainer and A People's Theology host, Mason Menega. In this episode, I talk with Emmy Kegler. Emmy is a pastor of Grace Lutheran Church in Minneapolis. She's also the recent author of One Coin Found, How God's Love Stretches to the Margins. Also musically featured throughout this episode is Sue Ann Shaw. Sue Ann is a Taiwanese-American singer-songwriter. You can get connected with both Emmy and Sue Ann and their work in the links in the episode description. If you're a fan of A People's Theology, it would bring me no greater joy than if you gave the podcast a five-star rating and review. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, if you feel so inclined, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Meninga. There are multiple tiers with wonderful rewards, including papers I write to even a book club. Enough of my rambling. Enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. Today I have Emmy Kegler, and Emmy is a pastor in the Twin Cities, and a spouse, and a writer, and uh, I'm sure there's lots more to you, Emmy, uh, which I may find out uh, over the course of this episode, uh, but those are just a few of the things you are. But who is Emmy Kegler to Emmy Kegler? Oh, gosh. Uh, <laughs> um, I love that. I love getting to serve as a congregational pastor. That's been a driving force mm. in my life for the past um, 15 years. And I'm so, so glad that that's part of my professional calling right now. Uh, and I, I love, yes, that you said spouse. Um, I love being married. That's one of the greatest joys that's coming to my life right now is my marriage to my wife. Um, we've been together. We've been married for just over a year. We've been together for almost five. And those two mm. things are really the the hinges on which the rest of my life turns, really, the, the axes on which the rest of my world spins. Mm -hmm. And uh, you might be a dog mom by any chance. <laughs> I am a dog mom of two who are napping very happily um, over next to me, having stolen <laughs> the easy chair in this room. And then also a cat who probably will not uh, show himself. He's usually sleeping between the hours of 9 a.m. and 7 p.m. So... Ooh, truly nocturnal. Indeed. Indeed. And he will let us wow. know at four in the morning that he is a nocturnal creature. It's <laughs> so great. Uh, as I mentioned, you are a writer and you recently released a book called One Coin Found, uh, How God's Love Stretches to the Margins. <laughs> and I think it's just a wonderful book. Uh, may I also add that your forward was by Rachel Held Evans, Rest in Peace. Mm -hmm. What a saint she was. Um, and so in this book, you talk a lot about your own experience in Christianity and your relationship with the Bible and being a queer woman um, and all of those things and all the interconnections there. Um, so while this book is largely autobiographical, mm -hmm. what was something that you learned about yourself while writing it? One of the great gifts of that process of writing was finding out how much had already been in process inside me as far as mm. answering some of those bigger questions 
there were things that I knew that I still had to wrestle with and that a lot of those are forming um, actually book number two, which I just sent the proposal in for. Mm -hmm. But book number one was really, um, what I was excited to find out was that there was a story ready to be told. My editor had asked me, will you think about writing a book for us? And I felt really anxious about whether or not I was able to pull that off or whether there was a story that was longing to be told or if I could find a cohesive way to put things together. And it was such a relief to find out that, yes, I did have something to say mm. that could come together as a, as a whole and do something integrative and practical for others. Mm -hmm. So while this book is mainly about your own relationship with the Bible, is there anything about the Bible that you learned while writing the book that maybe you didn't know about before? And if so, what was that thing? I would say as a as a whole, it was more the process, less of, of learning one story or one particular aspect of the Bible. As a whole, what I was coming to recognize through the writing process was the way that we interact with the Bible is rarely linear. We, we don't mm. have an experience where we start with Genesis and work our way through to Revelation at once and then that's it. That's how it, our relationship is defined. Almost mm -hmm. all of us who come to Christian faith have do it through a mediated process through church through experiences with other people through other pastors and teachers um, through bits and snippets of the bible and then those begin to set the stage for how the whole of the bible will be experienced mm. for us and i i certainly knew that but i don't think i'd experienced it as concretely as i did until mm -hmm. i set out to write the book i had imagined for a while that the book might go sort of in biblical sequential order or then in biblical chronological order and mm. eventually i realized it was my my life's chronological order that helped organize the direction of the book and then the different interactions that I had with different parts of scripture guided that. Mm -hmm. do, do you think even uh, with engaging the Bible in that way and sort of being introduced to the Bible in that way at different points in your life, do you sense that at where you're at right now that you, you've sort of gotten the breadth of it, right? Like there, there's lots of pieces to the Bible and so there's lots of different entry points to it. Uh, do you feel like you've gotten the whole Genesis to Revelation gamut of it? I think I would say I'm comfortable with, I feel comfortable saying I I, un, I know or have read through and can, um, and can understand references to the whole of the Bible. But every single time I pick it up, there's something new to find in the story. Every single time, even when I'm going through common lectionary gospel texts that I think, well, I've heard this a hundred times before, it turns out that I haven't. There's something new to hmm. find in there. And of course, um, there's always new scholasticism coming up around both Hebrew Bible and New Testament that can really inform better ways of understanding better forms of translation. Mm -hmm. And so... It's it's rare that I pick it up and read through and don't find something where I go, I don't remember wondering about that before. What can I learn about this? And then, you know, head for right. Google and start doing some research. Yeah. I think that might indicate uh, to the fact that this book is still a very living, active book and that God is certainly working through it. The fact that, mm -hmm. you know, every time, you know, someone like yourself who's professionally trained in reading this thing, that you're learning something new from it every time. Mm hmm. I think that's, I mean, part of it is that we ascribe meaning to it as individuals now, you know, that it, that I say something, something is meaningful that's happening in this book that isn't maybe happening in the same meaningful way when I pick up Harry Potter, right? Mm -hmm. Both of them have meaning in some way, but I ascribe a certain kind of meaning to scripture that is different from other books that I read. And also there are thousands of years of layers of meaning that have been ascribed to it by yeah. faithful people before me. And so there's, there's always that opportunity to learn more, not just from, you know, the immediate text, which obviously we can't really access, but 
to learn from the way the text came to be to the way the text came to be in English for us and the way it's been interpreted over the past two to 4,000 years. Yeah. You indicate in the first chapter that you were and still are a person who gets lost in stories. As you read, wrote about the story of your own relationship to the Bible, how did you get lost in your own story as you wrote that book? Uh, if that make, if that question seems to make sense at all. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There were a couple of times when I, I felt like I couldn't find the thread back out of my story. You know, the, mm. the charge of a preacher and a pastor, and I think a writer too, is to find the, the positive hook out of things, right? But I was dealing with a lot of really difficult stories um, and did want to dr- directly address them. But sometimes it was hard to find the thread out of my own story and wrap it up <laughs> neatly and nicely. And there were stories where I thought, well, maybe I should go in this particular direction about this congregation or this person that I know or this experience that I've had in my life. And I had to get to a point where I was like, this isn't meaty enough. This doesn't have enough in it to make, you know, a point that I'm trying to make or Mm. to really flush, flush out the chapter. And so then I had to, not only did I get lost in the stories, but sometimes I had to lose stories in order to create a cohesive whole. So with uh, those lost stories, if you will, did you sense uh, in sort of that self-editing process, uh, you know, where you recognize that, okay, maybe some of these stories just aren't going to, to be able to make this book. Um, d- did you sense that maybe some of those stories were the ones in which don't quite have that clear ending as life sometimes has it? <laughs> Absolutely. There's absolutely stories that, I mean, that I knew wouldn't make the cut from the beginning or that... I started to work in and then had to work out that I, I said, you know, this, it's, it's less that it doesn't have an ending or a neat ending because I think, you know, depending on how you tell a story, everything can be neat or messy, depending on what you decide to craft it into. Mm-hmm. But more that I got to points of saying, like, this doesn't hold enough meaning for me or alternatively, this meaning is so vulnerable for me and tender that I don't feel Mm. right about putting it into a book, whether Mm -hmm. that's about my own experiences or my experiences with another individual where I didn't really want to call up and be like, Hey, can I put our really difficult breakup in my book? Mm -hmm. Hope you're doing well. (laughs) Bye. Um, So to say that, and to say like, not only am I curating and tending to my own stories, but also I'm curating and tending to the stories of others who have interacted in my life. And am I treating those with the same kind of tenderness and care? Mm Did you even sense uh, that some of those stories that you you knew even weren't going to be making the book, did you sense that there you still needed like kind of write them and process them through writing to you know you just needed to get it out in some way, um, mm-hmm. even though you you still knew that that wasn't going to make make the cut. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of journal entries that came out of writing the book where I went, okay, sidebar, six pages typed out of just like you know, stream of consciousness, free flowing thought processing. 
okay, great. We'll put that in the folder to share with my therapist at some point, or um, just like, okay, that was cathartic. And now it can return to the main point. There were a lot of moments in that. And I think that's a key part of whatever, however we bring ourselves to a public platform, position, stance, whatever it may be, is that we have to know how to curate both, you know, what, what are the tender parts of us mm -hmm. that we're not ready to sort of expose for vulnerability? What are the things that we're charged for for care of others? And what are the things that just maybe don't hold enough water to create a good story? Mm -hmm. You had a, the great fortune of not uh, being an evangelical growing up, at least not as a child. <laughs> <laughs> how did your liberal mainline upbringing contribute to how you related to and read the Bible? So from the from the beginning, I mean, the the first my first experiences with the Bible were through storybooks and picture books. And my mother focused heavily on picture books of stories from the Bible that featured women, mm. which color is something very interesting when you start to actually read the Bible and discover that it's like 95% male driven. And there's only that 5% that these other authors were drawing from to create these, you know, beautiful stories that mm -hmm. I grew up with. So there was already this expectation of, of sort of egalitarianism and shared mission among men and women. And then mm -hmm. when I actually got to the meat of the Bible, I was like, who, who did this? Like, what, what did you do? <laughs> this is ridiculous. You left out all the good stuff. Yeah. You put in all this junk about men um in in the sense that like there weren't it, i could tell that the fullness of the story was not being told mm. there were people being mm -hmm. left out um in addition i had really early grounding in my liberal mainline especially in the episcopal upbringing that i had of this sense that we could wrestle with the text that we could ask questions of it that we could even say you know let's go back to original translations let's see what other historians and theologians have said let's not say that the text in english as we're receiving it right at this moment from this particular translation that we have before us is speaking without any intermediaries to where we are right now i was mm. raised to understand there are intermediaries there are different translations there is historical context and so when I began to experience that later in life and really notice the way that affected um, interpretations and translations over, you know, centuries of Christian practice was so helpful to me when I began to run into more fundamentalist interpretations where I just went, what? but I already know that this isn't true, that your read isn't mm. the only read, mm -hmm. that this isn't the only way we've always understood Christianity or, or Christian theology and practice. This isn't the only way we've always... <laughs> But there's other stuff. And uh, so I was really, I'm really grateful for what I absorbed as a child, even when it wasn't being, you know, taught directly mm. in, a, in a systematic form. So we'll get back to a little bit about your evangelical uh, experience. Uh, but before we do that, you wrote extensively about your realization about your own sexuality and sort of your opening yourself up to that realization. How did your relationship to the Bible change or not change during that time? Because I'd grown up in that liberal mainline Protestant tradition, I didn't have a significant fear of the Bible when I was first coming out, mm. when I was first realizing that I was gay at about 14 and 15. Um, but at 16 is when I started getting into evangelical traditions. And that's when I really started developing a fear of scripture because of the the very different ways that it was taught and used there. Mm. Mm hmm. So speaking of that evangelical traditions, mm -hmm. one of the things that I found really interesting uh, early on in the book was your encounter with evangelicalism. Um, most notably, you had sort of this fascination with the aesthetics of evangelicalism compared to your Episcopal upbringing. 
Can you say more about why the aesthetics of evangelicalism fascinated you? And then what about the aesthetics of like a progressive Lutheranism that really compels you today? So talk a little bit about the fascination of the aesthetics of evangelicalism back in the day. And then what what is it about being a Lutheran pastor now and the aesthetics of, of what you do maybe liturgically and architecturally in the church that you're at, all that, uh, that really compels you today? Yeah, I, having started, you know, my my wanderings into evangelicalism as a teenager, I think it makes a lot of sense that I was really compelled by a worship service that is definitely meant, at least in the experiences that I had in the Assemblies of God and in um, a non-denominational evangelical church, that was very intentionally meant to to guide an emotional sense of of God. Right, there was mm. sort of an uplifting that the music was more uplifting to start, and then it would start to tend, trend downward. You get into like the deeper, more emotional senses. You have open, you know you have um, proclamation and sermon, you have um, open time for prayer where there was often, you know, speaking in tongues and a great deal of uh, weeping and like a lot of emotions happening there. And then there would be the bringing back up into um, positive emotions to close with musical transition. And that was really freeing for me as a teenager, having mm. been raised in a really traditional high church Episcopalian context mm -hmm. where things were, um, there was certainly crafting, you know, great, great liturgical and linguistic crafting of what we said and did, but it didn't necessarily allow for the messiness of emotion that I, especially as a teenager was going through. Mm. So I think one of the things that really drew me was just like, I was this mess of hormones and like beginning depression uh like tr like trying to sort out my the, the depression that i was experiencing and also like the early treatments for depression that we were trying on me that weren't working greatest mm -hmm. like all of this emotion and feeling and intensity was matched in the aesthetics of the assemblies of god church that i was going to and i went oh okay finally jesus is meeting me where i am mm. and like these people really get it and i don't know that a 16 year old should really like have the final say in what a ch an ideal church aesthetic is <laughs> So I think that was one of the, you know, when I, when I got to a place that was healthier and I could say like, I don't actually want a worship service that very, that expects very explicit emotions from me, that expects me to match where the emotions are at. I want a little more flexibility and a little more expansion for like, eh, I'm not really feeling it today. And that doesn't mm -hmm. make me like a bad person or a bad Christian or unsaved or un an unbeliever or like, oh, wow, I'm really in a happy mood, but I need to transition into something else. Or I'm really sad and I can't just pop back out of it for the happy Pollyanna songs at the end. I needed something that allowed a little more for that. And I'm finding that in Lutheran liturgical practice. And I would say, generally speaking, mainline liturgical practice where there is structure, but when it's really lovingly crafted structure and we recognize the multiplicity of emotions that people are bringing on a Sunday, um, we make space for for the different ways that people process what's happening mm. within worship and expect different outcomes rather mm. than expecting everyone at the end of worship. At least what my experience was, was everyone at the end of worship was supposed to be at a very specific point in the assembly of God church that I went mm. to. And then now I feel like there's a greater expansion for like, okay, we've, we've clued you into some, some key religious practices here, but now your task is to take that into the world. And that looks very different for di very different people.
clouds that sail in heaven along Oh, praise Him Alleluia Thou rushing morning Praise, rejoice Do you find yourself uh, still maybe inserting here and there in the litur- the liturgies that you craft uh do you find yourself uh drawing on some of the that pentecostal experience um is there any any bits and pieces that you're like well let's throw a little charismatic flair into that one today i don't think anybody would call it charismatic or or pentecostal i would say more that i've stolen from evangelical marketing <laughs> in the sense that had been developed at Rick Warren's Saddleback Church, um, you know, talking about when we're when we're bringing people into a space that they maybe not are familiar with, what kind of language yep. are we using, and is that language accessible? That's guided a lot of my liturgical choices, which I don't always see happening. For example, in the New Revised Standard Version, which is still my go-to translation, it is written for a twelfth-grade level reading, which most Americans don't have. Mm -hmm. So then I start asking, like, is there a better way to translate this? What are the really, like, what are the key points? Are there other, you know, varying Mm. translations that might work better here? Um, I do really like the CEB, the Common English Bible as well. Yeah. Um, So, so, so like, okay, how how can that inform the work that I'm doing here? And I do the same thing with liturgical call and responses. Like, are the words that I'm putting in people's mouths, essentially, does that are they readable like are are they things that if people say out loud sound like something normal for example the nrsv often will translate mm. um different hebrew words that mean like nation or groups of people as peoples no one says that no one in their everyday life says peoples uh even though it's it, it's linguistically correct and very few people use that so i go <laughs> okay does that have to stay there or can we find a better word for that so that's very much informed by evangelical right. traditions and this idea of making something that's much easier to enter into. One of the things I also found really interesting in reading your book was you didn't grow up Lutheran. You grew up Episcopalian. How can you share that story of you kind of transitioning from being Episcopalian to Lutheran? I think that transition was one much more of circumstance than theological or liturgical contradictions. Uh, Mm. I was Episcopalian when I started college. I just happened to get enfolded into Lutheran practice at St. Olaf College. I think in many other possible circumstances, I could have stayed Episcopalian. I might have moved to the United Church of Christ and been happy in any of those three. I don't have enough familiarity with practice in other denominations to say I also would have been happy as a Presbyterian or a Methodist. I think that likely that would be true. But I can say the transition was less about, okay, I've examined all of the practices and traditions of the Episcopalian church and all the practices, traditions, and present, you know, present day functionality of the Lutheran church. And I choose Lutheranism. What Mm. more happened was I was in this tenuous place, place with Episcopalianism or with the Episcopal church specifically because of the congregation that I'd grown up in. So, so it's kind of an unfair transition because I was comparing, you know, maybe one of the lesser lesser forms of the Episcopal Church um, that was being practiced in my home congregation at the time to really what I still consider the sort of pinnacle of Lutheranism. And then, you know, right. I, I chose Lutheranism, but I chose because it was just better. It's 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 rotten apples to fresh oranges is the problem. <laughs> That's very true. How does being a queer woman inform or speak into your Lutheran theology? Mm, 
I think one of the most compelling things in Lutheran theology that did really draw me in was this concept of keeping paradox at the heart of the way we do theological understanding, that we recognize the not just mystery, not just strangeness, not just um, binary breaking attributes of God, but that God literally dwells in paradox. Mm -hmm. And that that Mm -hmm. defines how we understand God, how we understand the person of Jesus Christ, who is paradoxically fully man and fully human, how we understand our freedom from um, freedom from the law, but also freedom to serve the neighbor is entirely paradoxical. That was so helpful for me because it felt so much like being queer and being a Christian was paradoxical. Mm-hmm. At the same time, this idea that, you know, the paradox of the, the majesty of God being most clearly revealed in the suffering of Jesus Christ in his crucifixion, that was deeply meaningful for me as a queer Christian because I understood mm-hmm. suffering and isolation. I understood the feeling of being rejected by religious leaders and political parties. I understood the idea of feeling completely, you know, ab- completely pulled away from God or feeling that God had left and the idea that God had in skin in the person of Jesus Christ experienced that and that we talk about that as the core of the revelation of who the master of the universe is that was deeply transformative for me Mm -hmm. do you sense uh, you were kind of talking about um, I think early on about you know being a queer woman for I'm assuming, especially during your evangelical years, uh, there was that sort of like tension where you you felt like you had to hold uh, being queer and being Christian in tension with one another. But do you and I and like I I totally affirm the paradox uh, of uh, of that uh, in the paradox of Lutheran theology. But do you sense there's even like this sort of like mutuality now where they don't have to be held in tension? Uh, but actually are like mutually informing one another and, and in a mutual relationship with one another? Oh yeah, I, I don't think I would be, um, I don't think I would be as desperate for the Jesus confessed in the scriptures as I am as a queer person. I don't think mm. I would be as good a pastor if, I, I, I don't know what kind of pastor I would have been, but I feel like I've been made a better pastor because I am a queer woman. Um, mm-hmm. Because that has taken me out of what really could have been for me a very, you know, white suburbanite, uh, upper middle class, very privileged stance in life where that could have really colored Mm. um, my understanding of Christianity and my understanding of how we interact with the world. And instead I have been, you know, gifted with this burden of being part of a minority class in America and in the world and in the church. And then that has in so many ways helped me um, begin the process of waking up to the other systems of oppression that I might not have noticed if I hadn't been, um, if I hadn't been made queer. So mm-hmm. I am, yeah, it, my 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 sexual orientation and my faith are deeply intertwined and are not only not intention but deeply rely on each other for for guidance and for greater nurturing of the whole of who I am.
Today I have Sue Ann Shaw, and Sue Ann is a recently woken up person <laughs> who is also uh, an artist, a, a musician, and a brilliant theologian, and just a wonderful person all around. And you're coming in all the way, not from America, uh, but in Taiwan. So, uh, That's right. Hence why you have just woken up. Uh, I apologize for scheduling it at a time where uh, you you had to set an alarm for it. But uh, here we are nonetheless. Uh, I really enjoyed the music. Um, I'm a little curious about uh, about the album, uh, A Liturgy for the Perseverance uh, of the Saints. What, th- there's a sense of rawness in it that I really like. It, it sort of sounds like it was recorded in a really raw form. Uh, there isn't... To my, to at least to my ears, there's not a ton of like mixing and mastering of it. Um, is there intentionality behind that rawness that I hear? Yeah, uh, there's a couple reasons for the rawness, and I think that it's not just that, but it's also a combination with uh, minimalism. So hmm. um, every track it has a maximum of one instrument and one voice, mm-hmm. and so uh, I really was attached to this concept of, I mean, loosely a concept that I, I was considering of like the bedroom worshiper. Uh, and the idea of that goes back to the, you know, after the, after 2016, especially, I think that there are a lot of people who are unable to go back to church. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so there's this longing, this ache, this desire to worship God, to be unified with the body um, but coming from a place of pain and trauma. And, um, and I know for me that like in those hardest, darkest moments, I would just pick up an instrument in my room and I would just play and sing hymns that I loved, or I would go to the piano and I would just play them. And that's actually kind of where this concept for the album, it was, it was born. It was the genesis of that because I wanted to capture those moments of aloneness Mm. um in the record and this it's you know a snapshot and a moment of time um I wanted to almost record this phenomenon that I knew was happening all over the world well not over the maybe especially in the United States but mm-hmm. um maybe not in desire, this desire to be unified even um whilst like you were alone mm. and so um, I, and I thought about the fact that like, I knew all of these people, lots of people of color, lots of queer Christians who were, were doing that. They were putting, they're playing like worship songs on their computer in their room and singing along or playing their, you know, instruments alone in their room. Um, and that we were actually all together while we were all alone. Mm-hmm. And then that made us less alone in a certain mm-hmm. way. And so that's um, a core part of this liturgy for the perseverance of the saints is like I wanted to give people maybe who can't play instruments and who you know really partake in the I worship while listening off my phone or my mm-hmm, computer mm-hmm. Um, something that spoke to their personal experience um, and something that was actually created with them and this in mind so mm-hmm. um, that's why it's so minimal um, I would say, I mean, I mixed it. I mastered it. It, it. The really the the it's very minimalistic and it's raw in the sense that it it's not highly. I mean, I, I produced it with lots of intentionality and such, but uh, but that it doesn't have a lot of instrumentation. Right? Mm. 
So this album was released uh, a little bit ago. Is there any ambition to make some more music? Maybe you're currently making some more music. And uh, what what are some themes that you're noticing, maybe particularly lyrically, uh, that is maybe emerging out of some of that new music? If if it if you are indeed uh, rec- yeah, writing some new music, I'm not recording anything right now. I did bring um I I sold a bunch of my gear and I bought some new stuff to pare down my rig when I came to Taiwan because I just couldn't travel with like some big speakers and <laughs> a bunch mm-hmm. of uh, heavy stuff. So um yeah, I've got a I got a setup here in my room and um, I've been. I had a punk band, an all-girl punk band when I lived in Nashville for like cool. about a year. It, it was called Betty and the Lumberjanes. Um, it's a great yeah. name. It's a great yes, name. Yes, all-female punk band. And um, around in the, the years kind of before and around that time, I, I discovered punk music, uh, particularly like Riot Girl, and was really inspired by that. So that's a, another influence that's kind of in a liturgy that you might not realize is um a DIY value like you know just make the music roughness and um you know if you have three hundred dollars you could make a record with three hundred dollars like or even if you don't have three hundred dollars just make a record with whatever you have um and I think that today I grew you know living in Nashville for so long um, you know, people can send thousands of dollars on records and you say, you, you know, you either are born rich or you have a record label or you work like three minimum wage jobs and you like save up your pennies mm-hmm. for months and months and months. And um, I didn't exactly do any of those three because I'm a producer and engineer myself. So I did everything myself. And um so anyway, my point being that I, I, I'm invested in um, a producing and engineering myself mentality so, because I don't really have money to do otherwise, but I do have the skills and people, I, other people pay me to do this for them. So I do it for myself. Um, anyway, my point being, um, I had an, a concept. So both of these albums, I, I mean, I would call them concept records. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had actually an idea for a different concept record uh, a few years ago before I had the idea for this. And um, I wanted to do the hymns record kind of as a warm up into doing this other concept record, um, which I have not really been working on. Um, <laughs> I had the desire and I had the vision that I was like, when I moved to Taiwan, I want to work on this album. But I, you know, once I got here, I, I really want to focus on developing a healthy lifestyle and patterns a big reason I I left America I came here was to kind of heal after a lot of trauma in -hmm. the United States so um focusing on school and healing um but I did want to write a record that um was all in the form of love songs Mm. um kind of a breakup album um and I wanted to use female pronouns um, and for the record to kind of talk about like a relationship and like breaking up with the church mm. as, a, as a she. Um, and so I've actually never talked about this in public because I, I tend not to commit myself to things in public that I, and I'm not, that I'm not positive. Well, 
be finished. Um, (laughs) But if there will be another record, I feel 60% confident that it will probably be original songs within this concept album of like a breakup album with the church um, with, you know, referring to the church as she's. Um, Because I was I was kind of tickled by the idea of people being like, this sounds like a gay album. Why is this girl (laughs) singing about a girl? And it's like the church. Psych, it's about the church, but it's you kick me out because I'm queer. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's better than the Jesus is my boyfriend kind of worship album. So there is well, it is. It's that it's I'm reclaiming the concept of Jesus, my boyfriend, as the church is my girlfriend. So (laughs) my ex-girlfriend, my ex-girlfriend. Yeah, uh, so. it's more like a divorce actually it feels like we were married it's a divorce yeah. it's like yeah uh but there's might be a little bit of a custody battle going on <laughs> yeah no i told people I, for a while i was like you know it's like we're separated but we haven't filed for divorce yet um because i actually still am a member in good standing of the pca the presbyterian church in america Interesting. but like, yeah, but so it's like just in actuality separated but but not legally still married (laughs) yeah that's great well thank you so much suan uh i really appreciated the album i i think clearly there's a lot of meaning behind it for yourself um and especially for those who are part of the LGBTQ community and also just for those who have really felt jaded by the church and um, have sort of felt that separated uh, but not yet divorcedness of relationship with the church, uh, I, that this album really means a lot to them as well. And so I appreciate you sort of writing an, an album. Uh, not only was it coming out of your own self, but it also tended to mean a lot of things to a lot of other people. And uh, so I think when you're able to write something that's that deeply personal, uh, a lot of other people find uh, find commonality in, uh, in a relationship with that um, themselves because they also have that experience. So thank you so much for, for that music. I'm glad to be able to serve the body of Christ in that way. Hmm. And um, I definitely feel as though, like, even if people are scattered, um, it's still very valid. Well, my favorite book of the Bible is the book of James. He's like the first, the first, I I tried to like memorize the whole thing when I was 16. So it's like, (laughs) to all the tribes scattered abroad, greetings, like, like you are scattered and, but that doesn't make you any less a Christian. It doesn't make you any less committed to the church. It actually... It, it, part of people's alienation is is because of a, a dedication and um, a fidelity to the truth and to righteousness and to like the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, thank you.
As you mentioned before, this book is largely about your relationship with the Bible. Uh, so I have to ask, I, I just have to, what is your favorite story in the Bible? It's um, actually, I, I've just been working on this. I mean, I, I frame the book around the Luke 15 story of um, the the coin that gets lost and found. And that is the last tattoo that I got, um, which is my, my wrist tattoo that has nine coins with one missing. Mm-hmm. But just recently, we also are doing a series at my <laughs> queer evening church on Hebrew Bible and our relationship to it as Christians and as queer people. And I focused on the story of Esther and the whole book of Esther and both what that does in the context of what it is as a book and then also what it does in the context of Judaism and how it forms the the encapsulation of the festival of Purim, um, which will be, I think, late February this coming year. Um, And one of the things that I'm really Mm -hmm. wrestling with right now is um, the way that that story, the the whole book of Esther encapsulates the messiness of being humans who are trying to be in relationship with God, who don't have a direct line because God does not speak in the book of Esther. In fact, the name of God is never Mm. spoken in the book of Esther. It's inferred because it's said that Esther is Jewish. Um, Her, Mm -hmm. her, cousin Mordecai who raises her says, you know, deliverance may rise from the Jews from another quarter, but never makes direct reference to the existence of the creator of the universe. And that is so nurturing to me right now in that sense of like, how do we as humans make sense of a world where we don't, you know, like Moses get to go up the mountain and have a direct line to God, or like Peter get to fall into a trance and have a vision. If we don't have direct access to God day to day, what do our lives look like? How are our choices guided both by our past experiences and the history of the the families and the the, um, faithful ancestors, but also our own, you know, sense of courage and call. I really love that. I also love that it just confesses to the messiness of humanity because like Esther's taken in as essentially a sexual slave. Like she's put into a harem with every other, you know, beautiful virgin in the land, which is a whole messed up thing. Um, The, the end is the, Mm -hmm. you know, all the Jews under the um, reign of Ahasuerus who are able to take up arms and defend themselves violently against anybody who would try to kill them, which means that the story ends in bloodbath. Um, it's such a mess and that's so frustrating and yet also so deeply relieving for me that the messiness of my own humanity is likely not going to be a preventative to the possibility of God working through it. Mm -hmm. Also very deeply Lutheran right there. (laughs) How do you see one coin found to be inspiring and liberating theological work? I have some nerves about claiming any of those words for the work that I did. I mean, I'll claim the word work. It was definitely work. Uh, (laughs) Inspiring, liberating, and theological. I do like to say sometimes um, that I, the discipline of theological work and theological scholarship, I do understand that I do only a small part of, and there are so many other, you know, professional theological scholars who do that on a greater level than I can, um, or I'm called Mm. to do. And in the same way, I want to be like, but it's, it's, is it liberative? Is it inspiring? Okay. Um, I can say that I have people telling me stories where one coin found has been a way for them to rebuild a relationship with the Bible. And that mm. for me is really, was the mission, was the hope, was, you know, I've fought through a lot of different ways to come to this text and figure out what I'm going to do with the Holy Scripture that is at the center of my Christian faith. Here's what I've learned <laughs> may it help someone else. And I'm hearing from different corners all around, um, all around the globe that it is 
helping in in small ways and that that is a gift to me to know that the the wrestling and the work really has borne fruit for others as well as for me Mm -hmm. i love that last question emmy how can listeners get connected to you and your work uh they can find me online i'm on facebook Twitter and Instagram at Emmy Kegler, E-M-M-Y-K-E-G-L-E-R. You can also find me at emmykegler.com. You can also find me at Grace Lutheran Church in Northeast Minneapolis every Sunday at 10 a.m. Oh, bright and early. <laughs> I guess. I mean, that's, that's, I, I'm a Salmon's Porch person, so oh, we're, we're all evening. So that's very fair. my Saturday nights can, uh, they can be Saturday nights. <laughs> <laughs> that's a fair point. Well, thank you again, Emmy. I, I just absolutely loved reading this book. It was so, so wonderful. I, I, I know you don't want to make the claim that's inspiring or uh, liberating, but I certainly think it's both of those things. Uh, and, uh, you know, I've just enjoyed um, chatting with you. I think you're just so delightful and so kind. And uh, I love the work that you're up to in the world. And um, yeah, I, I just love the fact that here you are writing this really, I think, theologically robust and wonderful work. And you balance that so well with being a pastor. Uh, and uh, you're just really wonderful at that balance. And maybe that's because I think I've seen you're, you're a three, right? I'm uh, I'm a one on the Enneagram. Okay, never mind. For mm. some reason, I thought I saw you were a three. But that's fine. Okay. Well, I'm sure the ones can do that quite well, too. That balancing act. <laughs> Wait a second. Is that dig at ones? We're perfectionists. We don't believe we can do anything correctly. Um <laughs> there's no one harder on a one than a one. Mason, I'm just so grateful for the work that you do. Um, it's so interesting to be able to pull back the curtain a little bit on what a writer's process is like and what happens behind the scenes on books. And I just love the mm -hmm. way you can do that. And you ask such fantastic questions. And um, I'm just, I'm so grateful for the work that you're doing as well. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, that was one of the few times that a guest has uh, thanked me for what I do. So I thank you so much for that. <laughs> You're, you're Let's, go back and Let's forth just create a thank you yeah, cycle. Yes, I like it. Endless loop of thank yous. How about that? Wonderful. Thank you again, Emmy. Absolutely. Thank you, Mason. And thank you, listeners. Holy lean on Jesus' name. When darkness veils his lovely if you'd like to connect with both Emmy and Sue Ann and their work, you can find links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Menega. And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates.
with trumpet sound.